There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations with thought leaders from psychiatry and beyond, discussing topics that, whilst emanating from within the discipline, have relevance for society. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities one pharmacy at a time. October is South Africa's Mental Health Awareness Month, with October the 10th being the World Health Organization's Mental Health Awareness Day. A recent opinion piece from a local South African news site spoke of South Africa's mental health crisis, stating that the solution starts with educating ourselves, specifically about mental health and the various illnesses. That sounds like self-help, but what is self-help? How does it differ from self-care? To discuss these and other questions on today's podcast entitled Self-Help, A Means to What End, I would like to welcome Professor Dan Stain and Dr. David Webb, neither of whom are strangers to the podcast, having been guests previously. Dan is the Professor and Chair and Head of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Cape Town and Grotesque Hospital in Cape Town. He's published extensively, scientifically, and one of his most recent publications, a book entitled Problems of Living, Perspectives from Philosophy, Psychiatry, and Cognitive Effective Science, actually served as the basis for an earlier podcast and is, in fact, what got me thinking about this one. David is a medical doctor. He is an associate at Houghton House Addiction and Mental Health Treatment Center. He has worked in the pharmaceutical industry and works as a medical writer. In recent times, he has published volumes of poetry, specifically The Saint of Travelers, and most recently Saints and Liars. Both volumes are available at www.poetryofaddiction.com. Dan and David, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Dan, I'm, I'm, I'm going to kick off with you. And um, the opening paragraph of your book that really got me thinking about this particular podcast episode, which speaks about your exposure to books as an adolescent, ranging from philosophy to self-help and pop psychology. And I'm going to ask you to just share your thoughts on the latter books that you encountered, the self-help and the, and the pop psychology, what you encountered and what your thoughts were as you encountered them. Yeah, so, I mean, that was a little bit of a rhetorical device, perhaps, Christopher, um, in the volume, in that I was trying to sort of um, speak to readers about myself and about my thinking, um, rather than I didn't have specific concrete books in mind. And I was a little worried you would actually ask me, well, (laughs) which book? Exactly. Um, (laughs) um, Thinking about it, there were two books that I came across, I think, uh, in high school. Yes. Uh, the one was called Games People Play by Eric Byrne. Right. I'm not sure it's a self-help book, but it is sort of um, a very interesting book about how people uh, talk to one another and how they get confused with one another. And at the time, it was enormously helpful to me and just sort of thinking through my relationships with other kids in the high school Yes. and my relationship with my parents. Um, and so... Yes, that experience sort of stuck with me, perhaps, and, and got me interested. The other w- was a book by Desmond Morris called The Naked Ape. Yes. And uh, Desmond Morris is uh, sort of a, uh, a primatologist. He, he studies um, non-human uh, primates, and he wrote about humans as kind of, yeah, naked apes. You know, we're <laughs> all monkeys underneath it all. And I found that absolutely fascinating at the time. Um And it's kind of weird because it just makes me think I haven't been careful enough, perhaps, in putting out the books that I want my own kids to read. You know, you you have these books on the bookshelf, and this is the two they stumble on. Right. And this is, you know, that age can be tremendously influential, you know, and you should probably pick your books with more care. I suppose so. And, I mean, the the one book that comes to mind, I'm not sure for you, David, is uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I think that was like a, a fairly classic. Wasn't that Dale Carnegie? Dale Carnegie. Dale Carnegie. Profoundly uh, influential book, especially for me. In fact, I read both of those books that uh, Dan mentioned as well. Okay. Uh, and another book called The Road Less Traveled by Scott Peck. Those three books were my yes. uh, start into this journey. The, uh, the How to Win Friends and Influence People, what I really liked about it is it's a list of simple practical instructions 
Uh, and then in his chapters, he explains, he gives example on how he noticed these and how he implemented them. And that's why I liked it because um, they're, they're, it really is about how we relate to people and giving enough time to other people and validating other people. Um, and I, I think being genuine and real with them. Yes. I wanted to mention one other book, which I read recently, which is a book by Saki Santarelli called Heal Thyself. And although he presents it as a book for lay people, it's actually written to the medical profession to encourage them to come down to the level of the patient and share of themselves and actually um, be more vulnerable with with patients. And I loved that book because that's the approach that – I, through trial and error, and yes. it's not in trial and error, <laughs> um, have um, found to be the most therapeutic because I think that what most people want to do is they want to be validated in who they are rather than be told that there's something wrong with them and they have to change mm. and then be taught to taught how to grow into right. who they can be. So um, it, was a, it was a beautiful book. So both of you have read certain of the books. I mean, you, you just reminded me of Scott Peck's book because I think it's the opening sentence. And I, I mean, I got past the first sentence, but the first sentence is life is hard. Mm. And I thought that's such a powerful introduction to, to a book. And Scott Peck, of course, is a psychiatrist. Did you ever read Scott Peck's book, Dan? I did. Um, we can talk about it more. Yes. But I think it's while also talking about Dale Carnegie's book. Yes. Um, because really, um, it's not on my bookshelf. I did read it um, okay. at the same sort of time. Um, and although it's not on my bookshelf, I found uh, recently that one of my kids was reading it uh, to go back to our earlier conversation. Oh, right. Interesting. Where did they what find it? Um, I'm not sure. I think they got it from a friend of theirs. So, okay. you know, that book has sold, you know, well over 100 million copies. And sure. apparently, um, given that um, my kid is reading it, um, <laughs> It's still going strong and it's been very influential. It's influenced many other self-help books, you know, the way it was written. It's influenced many people, you know, uh, both famous and infamous people have said they read it when they were young and um, they have followed its percepts. And then we could sort of have a debate really to some extent uh, about whether it provides good or bad or indifferent advice. Well, I suppose at the end of the day, it's always about consumer beware. Um, I don't know to what extent one reads a book. So I suppose some can change your life uh, quite profoundly. I remember reading Alan Watts's book, The Wisdom of Insecurity, which I found a fascinating title because is there wisdom and in insecurity? And really a lot of his thinking was almost counterintuitive, but very Eastern and Buddhist influenced. And so I, I think books can certainly influence how you think and how you ultimately behave and ultimately how you function. But I think one of the criticisms of the uh, self-help let me call it an industry, and and I think where we where I come from in in this sense is if you say self help, I think books. That's the first thing I actually think of. That's my sort of sort of gut response or, or knee jerk response. But there's been a, a a sense that these books are quite superficial, and there's no real scientific evidence for the advice offered. That they're very kind of you know this is what I think, and it's presented as if it's but this is the way it is. A very personal interpretation of life is presented as a as an absolute. So I'm, you know, in terms of debate, I mean, maybe that's what you might be referring to, Dan. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so um, I was thinking about Carnegie's book, and I was thinking about the extent to which it offers helpful advice. I mean, yes. I I look around at my colleagues, and I think that some of my successful colleagues do follow his advice you know, which is about being nice to other people, remembering their names, buttering them up a little bit. Yes. And I, I noticed that um, some of my successful colleagues, at least in academia, um, are very good at interpersonal relationships. Um, but then I guess where it gets superficial is there's probably much more to interpersonal relationships than um, buttering people up and remembering their names. Yes. Uh, I mean, that could be seen so, as manipulation. Correct, correct. And and hence um, the slight caution about a bunch of infamous people also having read him um, and perhaps employed his techniques to do things that are a little bit more nefarious. 
I think that's um, very interesting because I mean, what I mean, the word techniques is a very interesting choice of mm-hmm. word because it means you're employing a technique in order to achieve a specific outcome, which doesn't necessarily speak to your true intent. It's just a technique, and it's quite superficial in that sense. Right, and I mean, this also takes me back to your earlier comment about using books. So um, I happen to have a um, book called A Hundred Books That Changed the World. Uh-huh. And in that book is um, Dale Carnegie's book. Okay. Um, but, you know, we're now in the world of podcasts uh, that you seem very <laughs> comfortable with, uh, Christopher. And so there would then be all sorts of other kinds of yes. um, self-help technologies yes. out there. Right. Um range of apps that are focused on this and increasingly also a range of electronic tools, you know, um, things that you take home and put over your skull and press a button. These are also part of the self-help. And social uh, media. Billion dollar industry. And social media. You know, I can, I can just refer to, to Instagram and I'll, I'll give you a personal insight there. But I mean, for, for me, I speak about books. I speak about the industry. I mean, I'm going back to an old, uh, a stat. 2013, because I couldn't really find anything more current. But they were talking then that it's a, a billion-dollar industry, actually, the sort of self-help um, industry. And in terms of this issue of scientific evidence, is it is it is it is it uh, good advice that's being offered? What does it really do? There was another stat that that came out from from the publishers actually that 80 percent of self-help book purchases are repeat buyers. So there seems to be a specific market that tends towards self-help books. But what they did say was that most buyers tend not to read beyond the first 20 pages and that they said it's the act of buying the book that is the help or that is the therapeutic component. Now, I don't know to what extent that necessarily holds true, but I mean, when you speak about Dale Carnegie's book having sold over 100 million and being on the top 100 books of all time, one must assume there's something more going on in terms of what people are getting from it and how they're utilizing it beyond the first 20 pages. Unless I haven't read it, so maybe the first 20 pages are fantastic. I don't know. And then it goes downhill. (laughs) I I think it's probably a combination, right? I think um, it's it's amazing to me that both Dave and I, and and you, not this book, but the other books um, that that we've all read together, right? So certainly some books are sort of found um, by people that are searching yes, um, and they do read them and, and they, in fact are influenced by them. I um, think absolutely. I've got another bunch of books that I've bought and haven't read for sure. Well, David, I, yes. When I think of self-help, I also initially think of books. Of course, there are many reasons why somebody might seek help. And I think that in more recent years, it's moved away from that. I mean, um, I saw a book the other day that was sort of how to, how to how to cope after age thirty, for example. You know, I mean, people might wow. seek help for those things too. Um, I've heard the opinion about Dale Carnegie's book and um, manipulation. I think this probably could be applied to anything where there are techniques that uh, improve social relationships. Um, I hold a different perspective. Right. I think it's very important the intention that one goes into any form of um let's call it therapy or 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 seeking to grow um from where you are to move on from where you are and if your intention is to manipulate people then it's helpful to understand how people think however I do think that an enormous amount is known about how we relate to each other, how we communicate, how people think, what motivates them. And unfortunately, I mean, even going through medical school, I knew nothing about this before I became involved in my own mental health and the mental health of other people. Yes. And when I talk about mental health, I have a definition of mental health, and that is that we're able to cope with the uh, changes and troubles of every day without falling apart. Mm. So what that would involve is an absence of uh, debilitating depression and anxiety, uh, a sense of equanimity that uh, I can I can handle whatever comes my way and everything will be okay because of that, 
a sense of autonomy that uh, I have some and self-efficacy that I have some control over my own life. And very importantly, a sense of authenticity that I'm one person. I don't have to keep trying to change myself to fit what I think other people think I should be like. Right. Expectations. So when I, when I think about books like Dale Carnegie's, I mean, and Dan mentions, in fact, one of the, the rules that stick out in my mind, that a person's name is the sweetest sound to their ears. Yeah. What I notice is that, uh, I'm very bad, and I'm very bad at that. I and must Dan, tell you. when you throw people's names, and I don't mean throw, I mean that, that, I shouldn't have used that word. It's a bit too casual. Um, when you remember people's names, very important. it's profoundly important to them. Mm. I, I mean, have this, ex- this experience all the time. For example, uh, I go to gym and I know the names of all the cleaners. I know the names of the people behind the desk. But importantly, I know the names of the security guards in the car park. And what I noticed before was that, you know, sometimes they appeared to be often grumpy. That's Mm -hmm. my interpretation of them. It probably says more about me than them. But as soon as I learned their name uh, and I called them by their name, their face absolutely brightens up. Mm -hmm. And you can make somebody's day by calling them by their name. It's a small thing. I don't think in my Certainly the way I use it, it's certainly not manipulation. Right. Um, Where does that appear in Dale Carnegie's book? How soon? Well, Because it sounds like it's quite a powerful – and it's, it's, it's so obvious. The wonderful actually. thing about Dale Carnegie's book is you only have to read the index. <laughs> All the instructions are listed there. And so maybe uh, I'm right. They don't get beyond the first 20 He was pages. a salesman. So, I mean, what Dan yes. says is not wrong. I mean, he was a salesman, and what he wanted to do was get the best out of his day and sell as many, books as many items. I was going to say as many books as possible. He, he probably selling. wanted to sell as many books he as might possible. Have been, as I well. might have been a book salesman. I don't know. I can't remember what he was selling. What? Dan? David is, is raising a couple of issues. I yes. mean, um, I think it is um, worthwhile just to sort of go there. Yes. Um, things that come to my mind are, um, so it's about self-help, right? But in fact, you also have a relationship with the author, right? You are reading Dale Carnegie yes. or whoever. And particularly if the person is famous or if you've been introduced by a circle of friends, there is sort of a relationship there as well. Um, I mean, you could think of Oprah Winfrey as kind of a self-help guru in a way, but you're watching Oprah. So is it self-help or is it a relationship with Oprah or or what are we dealing with? Yes. Um, And then another sort of dimension that comes up for me um, that was triggered by what David said is, you know, is it help? Uh, or is it advice? You know, so is it hmm. something along the lines of, well, I'm ill and I'm seeking a, a therapy and help in that sense? Or is it all of us are, you know, constantly turning to one another for input of one kind of another, um, advice of one sort of another? And, and in fact, you know, shouldn't that be the rule rather than the exception? I mean, be, an yes. odd and lonely life if you never ask anyone for input or advice. No, I think that's actually very important, the meaning of words or the use of words. Because I think when you make the help-advice distinction, I start thinking guidance. And so now we're moving into a slightly different realm. And that is something which probably takes place or should be taking place on a daily basis, starting within the family. You know, where you are getting guided, you're being heard, you're being challenged, corrected, um, as I said, you know, move toward a different opinion or, you know, being made to explain your position. And so there is this constant exchange between people because we are a society that thrives on human interaction or interaction between humans as a, as a species. So I think that's, that's very interesting because I hadn't really thought too much about, you know, help versus advice versus guidance and where does it begin? Yeah. And so for I mean, me, I think, yeah. I think your point about, sorry, go ahead. No, no, carry opinion. on there. No, carry on. Um, I was just, so I think you're right about the family and obviously the family operates within society as a whole. So, and we've talked about social media and all the different kinds of advice you can now get on the internet. Um, but I find it curious, uh, you know, that I started with this stuff as an adolescent because as an adolescent, that's when you start to say, hold on, the guidance I've been getting from my family uh, is one kind of guidance. What about other kinds of guidance out right. there? And so it's at that time, I think, that self-help might be particularly influential. Yes. Where well, your mind is open to other sorts of guidance. So you're kind of seeking beyond. Yeah. 
Yeah. And yeah. certainly yeah. I think adolescence is a time for that, to be honest with you. I think that certainly working with adolescents, that's when they're starting to question, challenge, move beyond. And I think that's kind of part of normal development. David, you wanted to say something? Well, I think I agree with Dan. And it doesn't – whether it's advice or help, um, again, as long as the intention, I think, is to – is to grow from where you are, then I don't think that really matters. But I agree absolutely that it's, it, it, it doesn't work in isolation. Yes. I mean, we are social animals and our entire lives revolve around being social. And, and that's what I have. I, I'm not a fan of, uh, um, any form of, um, efforts to grow, which is done in isolation. It, it, um, it needs to be done with other people and preferentially with some sort of mentor who can guide you, show you what to do. Um, you need three things, of course. You need to know what to do. You need to believe you can do it. But most of all, you need uh, to believe that it's worth doing mm. um, and be able to implement it and see the small changes and the successes, the achievements, the sense of self-worth, etc., that come from doing those things. And slowly over a period of time, that will change your perspective of yourself and the perspective of yourself in the world. Okay. So then it, it will become successful. Okay. Otherwise, it's, it, I agree with Dan. It's just something that it, it is a tingly, nice-to-have feeling at the time reading the book. I also started in adolescence when, when you sort of like you know, wondering where you are in the world. Yeah. So, Dan, there you, may be different kinds of guidance at, at different points in life as mm -hmm. well. Because, uh, David, you mentioned a book for – people turning 30, 30 and above. And Another one, Dan, was uh, how to have sex with the same person for the rest of your life. I think I read that also in my adolescence. <laughs> is that an actual, is that an actual, is there an actual yes, book? Yes, yes, yes. Wow, it's amazing. It's amazing what's out there when you go searching. Sorry, Dan. You, were going... I mean, you, may have, you, you may have a particular issue. You know, you're feeling middle-aged and, and yeah. there are a bunch of books out there on, on midlife crisis. Uh, I've um, looked into, haven't yet spent money on, but I'm, I'm strongly thinking of uh, purchasing books on on retirement and how to make the most of that. Oh, uh, so you you're, you're about to become another. a self help junkie. It, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, marriage is another big one. How to how to how to look after your kids? I mean, there's a whole self help industry. Doctor Spock and others. Yes, so I think. Um, oh, of course, Doctor Spock. I'd I'd forgotten about yeah. Doctor Spock. He was huge. <laughs> He was huge. I mean, now you're sort of giving, I'm, I'm getting flashbacks to all of the self-help books that I've probably encountered, but never really thought of them within a specific genre. I'm like, gee whiz, I'm a product of all so of those self-help books. You're not a junkie. You've, you've avoided it. Was that like, what, what is that, denial or something? It was a, well, you know, I did what David is talking about. You see, because for me, this whole idea of self-help in isolation, I think is problematic because the the idea, and we've been talking about that, earlier with Dan was saying, and I mean, it's, it's about interaction and it's about growth through interaction actually. So, so if you, if you think you're going to feel better simply by reading a self-help book alone and it's all about you, I think that could be part of, part of the problem potentially. Um, because I do think that the interaction between people is ultimately what is helpful actually. So we come back to humans as a species and and the need for for interaction and obviously i mean self-help is 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 about is it about fixing a problem is that what self-help is about not necessarily i don't think so um sometimes we just don't know where to go right so uh one of the reasons why i think assistance does work is um well two things perhaps the first thing is that it doesn't ask you to change. It teaches you to grow, it teaches mm. you to grow into who you can be. Uh, most of us don't need to change. We are who we are through our genes, our experiences. And if I had your genes, your parents, etc., your education, I'd be you. So we find ourselves where we find ourselves, be, uh, in, which is inevitable. We should be here where we are. But it's not okay necessarily to stay where we are. Right. And so I think that it, it's often about growth and, and we're just not quite sure how to, which direction to go to. Um, sometimes we, we've grown up in circumstances where we haven't learned to have self-confidence or self-worth or to or be resilient and, and small things bring us down and make uh, living every day a challenge. So 
Um, I think that the important thing is that the, we we can learn to move on from that and right. develop the skills that we haven't necessarily developed as we have grown up and progressed through life. So I suppose if you were to identify a problem within yourself, you might seek a book that may actually give you more insight. And books can be helpful, but I, I think they're far less helpful than personal instruction and mentorship. Now, that's an important point. because well, well, Dan? Let's just talk about this a little bit. because yeah. um, so, so, Christopher, you earlier noticed that I used the word technique. Yes. Um, that's something that self-help books often uh, do encourage, is sort of the making everything a technique that you can learn kind of thing. And, and that's perhaps part of um, the concern about their lack of authenticity. Uh, David specifically mentioned uh, the importance of authenticity and and I'm sort of thinking um, you guys are moving there when you're talking about real relationships that mm. offer authentic advice that are tailored to a particular person. Um, I certainly see the value of that, but I think it's worth just double-checking uh, on this issue because um, there's a lot in the self-help industry which is kind of a automatization, if you like, of rote ideas. Yes. Um, they're around encouragement they're around not criticizing you. They're around emphasizing resilience and grit and determination, perhaps. Um, they're sometimes about um, acceptance, accepting the world is hard. Um, and then, you know, it raises the question of, well, how's that different, perhaps? I mean, you, you could look askance at that and say, oh, well, you know, you've got all these snake oil salesmen out there who are selling this diet of self-help that's, very superficial, mm. um, with a few road techniques. Um, and yet, I, mean, I think one must be a little careful of that because I think even authentic relationships uh, might sometimes include some of this, right? So even in a very deep, meaningful one-on-one, -on -one, uh, you might cover some of the same ground, really, yes. um, perhaps. No, I think that that's… Raising that as a no, I think, and, and I think that's probably true. Actually, so one has to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think essentially, and I think there is, there is, um, value to be gleaned from such books, perhaps, but I, perhaps it's about context. Yeah, I suppose so. I think it also depends where you are in your life at a particular time that causes you to look for something specific and maybe it provides you with a way forward, not necessarily the final answer and gives you an absolute, uh, a clear picture of, of, of where you're at and what you need to do next, but it may be potentially coming back to that use of the word guide. But I wanted to bring self-help into the realm of psychiatry because, you know, as a psychiatrist, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of wondering where self-help potentially fits in. And I actually think that there is a strong link between psychiatry and self-help. If I think, for example, about psychoeducation as an integral part of a holistic um, intervention with a patient where we're saying, listen, you need to know about your disease, you need to know about your medication and why there's a need, for example, in specific sense situations to be compliant. I don't know what your thoughts are there, Dan, but I actually see that psychiatry and self-help are quite closely linked as a therapeutic tool. Sure, particularly certain kinds of, of psychotherapy, particularly cognitive behavioral therapy, perhaps mm. where homework and reading is sort of part of the therapeutic process. There's the term bibliotherapy, um, which really means reading books. Um, some people, I think, use the word bibliotherapy also to talk about writing and okay. expressing the self, um, and that, that may be related or slightly different. Um, but there's, there's, there's quite a sort of um, persuasive literature on the value of bibliotherapy for things like anxiety disorders. Um, I know that when I see people with obsessive-compulsive disorder, um, I often recommend one or two essentially self-help books but yes. focused on that particular condition. Um, and people and often ask, that, people often ask, I say, well, yeah. is, is there a book that I can read? Mm, mm. So there is and, a searching for information. Describe it, uh, in, in, as useful. Uh, and then I sometimes find also that there are books in OCD literature. You've got books that are slightly more uh, Western technical. You know, this is how you fix it. And there's yes. some books that are slightly more Eastern, right. you know, acceptance mm. and uh, uh, sort of that kind of Zen approach to dealing with the problem. 
and and I might uh, offer the person I'm seeing with and say, well, this is the range. What which which would you think you'd prefer? And then and they might and they often say, I'd prefer you know one approach or another. Right. And then there's a book for them. You see, because I think that what we really want to do is empower our patients ultimately, and so I think that in this um, movement towards actual more personal responsibility and disease management where it's not just a function of the doctor says that's what you do. It becomes more of a shared decision-making. There's a kind of what they call a co-production and self-management I think is, is, is actually important because it returns power to the patient and a sense of control. And so I think that, you know, the psychoeducational approach to psychiatric care is actually a very important component. And in that sense, we are actually promoting self-help. And so I do see a pretty strong link. But one of the specific areas, and maybe, David, you'll talk more about that, is the issue of family and patient support groups. And I think specifically AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, would be an example, a very specific example, not unique to psychiatry, but obviously beyond that, in terms of, of, of support groups. And, and to what extent these constitute a form of self-help? Well, we're taking a wider definition of self-help. Yes. Um, and I, I thought about this a lot. How would I define self-help? And I sort of uh, came to the conclusion it's anything. <laughs> which okay. Anything that's helpful. Grow. So, right. I mean, the, they, both of those do involve books. But most importantly, they involve social support. The family, of course, is often forgotten, in, um, especially when you're seeking help for yourself in more social environments. I mean, perhaps in medicine, um, uh, the clinician might steer the family towards some sort of help for themselves. But when you're dealing with social groups where there's an emphasis on the person with the, the problem, uh, then the family often goes through two um, traumas. First of all, the trauma of uh, living with the person with the problem, the addiction or the alcoholism, or well, alcoholism is an addiction, I believe. Um, but secondly, once the person starts to improve and develops these very supportive relationships, in fact, sometimes very close relationships, the family can feel quite isolated and excluded from that, especially if uh, the person is recovering and uh, developing this sort of evangelical approach to a newfound wisdom and excitement for life. Um, so I think family support groups are extremely important. And they don't always have to necessarily – well, family support groups don't necessarily have to be run by professionals. And I think that's where I see the self-help is that – yeah that the, 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 the actual support group is not necessarily professionally driven, but it's driven by the patients and Absolutely. the families themselves. Yes, people with the experience. I mean, the, the thing about medical professionals is while we provide a specific service to people, we don't necessarily have the same experience as those people. And right. it's, it's quite difficult, especially, I think, I mean, well, you guys are the psychiatrists, but especially in the realm of mental health, I have, I think that it's very, we can imagine what it's like to have cancer or a heart attack, but it's very difficult to imagine what it's like to have major depressive disorder or addiction. And that's why I think, you know, the social help groups and people who've experienced that, and especially for families who've, who've had the experience of somebody with that mental disorder and how they coped and what they've been able to accomplish through that, through those coping it's very skills. helpful. Is it, it is invaluable, invaluable, absolutely. It's essential, yeah. actually. Dan? Yeah, this is a, a very important part of our conversation, um, and I'd like to mention two organizations in, in particular that I've yes. had some experience. The, the one is SADAG, um, South African Depression mm. and Anxiety Support Group. So that was started by Zane Wilson, who's probably more, tw more than 20 years ago, who's been you know very upfront um, in explaining that she started it because she had panic attacks and met the diagnosis for panic disorder, but it took her a very long time to get that diagnosis and the right treatment. And she didn't want other people to go through the same thing. And really, I mean, that organization is now one of the largest um, consumer advocacy groups in the area of depression and anxiety. I mean, perhaps not as big as the American ones, but certainly bigger than um, a lot of um, in other countries. And it's based around, you know, starting up 
essentially self-help groups. Mm. Um, they provide ways in which the groups might work well um, and other kinds of guidance and there are people on the telephone available to you. Um, but it's really taking the concepts that we've been talking about, consumer advocacy mm. and self-empowerment and um, finding appropriate help forward in a, in a way that I think has really dramatically impacted thousands of lives of South Africans, mm. encouraging people to get a diagnosis, encouraging people to take evidence-based treatments and move on. The second organization that I've had a little bit of, um, well, not a little bit, sort of, I mean, uh, quite close to for a number of years is, is used to be called the Trichotillomania Learning Center or TLC. Okay. It's now uh, the Body Focused Repetitive Behavioral Disorders Foundation. And so this is an organization that focuses on people with hair pulling um, initially and then later on also skin picking and other kinds of, of similar uh, behaviors. And these, these are, you know, I've, I've been interested in these behaviors for a very long time. It's sometimes tricky to explain to other clinicians why because you know if you used to if you, your research focuses on psychotic conditions or severe depression uh, then you might argue but that you know these are more milder perhaps conditions mm. but for the person that has them and, and for the families that are impacted um, you know the impact can be pretty significant um, uh, and perhaps because it's people like you and me, they're often, you know, quite functional in other areas of their life. Um, they've been able to put together these consumer advocacy organizations mm -hmm. and get together um, and teach one another about the best evidence-based approaches to intervention. And um, on the occasional times that I've been in the room with sort of three or 400 people with hair pulling and skin picking. It's, it's quite wow. a profound experience, actually. That's a lot of yeah. people in one room who um, do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and because, because it no longer becomes um, sort of this odd condition or yeah. this is it, is, it an, uh, is it a condition or isn't it a condition. Skin picking, for a while, there was a question of would it um, end up in DSM-5. Uh, and then people with skin picking wrote to um, the DSM-5 editors um, expressing in, in very persuasive ways why it needed to be in the manual, and when you're in the room with people with the condition, then it's 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 blatantly obvious why it needs better recognition, um, more funding, and so on. Because then you're looking face to face at a person or at a group of people and at their families, and mm. and you're hearing about the impact on their lives, and and um, and that yeah, so so, so self help becomes then. Quite important, yeah. Sorry, and I'm just gonna—I'm I'm just gonna say that it's—it's it's very powerful when you're amongst a group of individuals who have something similar to yourself. You don't feel isolated. You feel more connected. You can relate. They can relate to you. And I think it's—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's hugely important. I mean, we had a, a previous podcast episode that dealt with suicide and um, loss. And we had a lady on who was from the Compassionate Friends. And I mean, there's a support group that deals with loss. And she specifically runs a, a, a group within the group that deals with families who've lost loved ones to, to suicide. And I mean, that is, that is very powerful, yes. actually. And also conditions where there's a lot of guilt and shame. Because we tend to, especially shame, we tend to keep that to ourselves. Right. Um, but, for example, in Alcoholics Anonymous, when you go to a meeting and you you hear somebody standing up and telling their story and what's happened and the things that they've done, it really does give you a, a sense of permission to confront your own experiences and your own sense of shame uh, and to become more vulnerable. And in those those um, types of scenarios, there's an enormous therapeutic value of talk and um, introspection and uh, getting a sense of self-awareness again. So I always say that three important things is to talk, walk, and to write. Yes. Um, 
But I think what's very important here is is something we've been alluding to earlier about self-help being a, a solo pursuit versus actually connecting with other people. And I think what we're talking about here are support groups that actually offer that combination where you are seeking something uh, for yourself in terms of help, but you're doing it through connecting with others who have similar problems and who can relate and who can share and from whom you can learn and grow. If, if you were to learn to play the piano, you 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 could get a book to teach you, but uh, for many people, it would be easier to learn and probably more productive if you had a teacher. Well, I think that brings me to a very important point. But before I get there, I just wanted to pick up on the issue of SADAC. I mean, I think if you had to monitor how many calls they receive and how much work they do and see what contribution an organization like SADAC and others provide as almost like primary health care in a sense, because you can't take every problem to a professional because there aren't enough professionals to receive, I mean, from a resource point of view. But I think that the, the, the organizations provide a, an enormous resource actually for, for, for individuals who suffer. Dan? Sure. I mean, it gets to also to this question and what we're talking about a little bit is what works, what's helpful right? Um, in self-help or in any other kind of help. Um, and so, you know, uh, David mentioned perhaps um, self-awareness or getting rid of the shame. And I, and I, you know, I think that's one of the important aspects, for example, of, of um, hair pulling and skin picking is, 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 is the shame involved. Same with alcoholism, of course. Um, and, and so, Yes, but on the other hand, um, I think too much navel gazing, uh, too much self awareness may also not be Absolutely. always that helpful. So, so oftentimes these things are balanced. Um, one of the advantages I would say of, of some of the groups is finding very practical yes. things that work, what works and what doesn't work. It might be a little bit different for each person, but yes. you know, if something works for someone else who's got a very similar condition that you have, then you may well want to try it. It may be better. Um, relationships too, you know, some of them are helpful um, and and healing, uh, but we perhaps don't talk enough about the side effects of psychotherapy and how it can go particularly wrong. Yes. And how some psychotherapy uh, can be bad for you. So, yeah, it depends a little bit on who you're seeing, what the chemistry is. And mm. um, I think in all of these things, I guess my guiding philosophy in, in, in the book you mentioned earlier, Christopher, yes. is... You know, a little bit of balance. So, you know, a little bit of self-awareness, not too much. A little bit of relationships, not too much. Right. A little bit of practical kinds of things that work. No, I uh, think that's very important. I mean, I find myself using the word balance often. The question is how to find the balance and what is the balance for the individual? Because it's not a, it's not a straightforward formula. It's like this equals balance. Balance is a concept. And I think one has to find that within the individual. David, you wanted to say yes, something? I, I, what Dan says, particularly in, I don't know about the, the other, the, the hair pulling thing that he mentions, but it sounds very much like the addiction world to me. In the addiction world, Dan is absolutely right. The, uh, there's often far too much looking back and the purpose of looking back must be to solve, solve here and now problems. Right. Otherwise it, it just becomes something that continually brings you down. And I see this very often, um, where people are doing worksheets that they're given, which continually focus back on behaviors that they have had and episodes that they have and they, they, they get this reinforced sense that I'm a bad person because the aim because the, the the exercises are badly phrased, for example, mm. um, and so what they don't do is lead to skills which will help me move forward. Right. They're just continually digging up things from the past that this is what I did. This is a bad person. I, I guess sometimes almost it's presented as a sense to remind me of what it was like, and I don't want to go back there. But there's there's no help in that if you're feeling really bad now because if I'm can continue reminded what it was like I, I just get this reinforced mechanism in my brain where my brain is telling me we'll go back to it because that's what gave you relief from all these uncomfortable you're feelings in the first place in the I'm addiction talking context. about now in addiction yeah. in the addiction world so let me give you a very simple mm. example. Um, the uh, step one in the 12 steps of recovery says that we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Our lives had become unmanageable. What it's basically saying was that when I started drinking, I couldn't stop drinking. 
um, I drank till I blacked out. And secondly, I couldn't leave alcohol alone. I couldn't stop drinking for a few days or a week. Um, and there are mechanisms in the brain that explain both of those behaviors. We know they do. But the thing is, though, what it says is I was powerless over alcohol. And, and people are often asked to write 20 things where I was powerless. That That's not the point. The point is once you've stopped drinking alcohol, and especially if you're in a rehab, you've stopped. Right. Um, you're not powerless anymore. You have enormous agency on how to respond. So a, a much healthier way to frame those questions is write down three things or ten things that happened to me which were beyond my control. How did I respond to that? What was the outcome? How might I respond to that in future? So, I mean, to, to hop on the fact that one is powerless when one is not powerless anymore mm. um, is just, uh, first of all, a misunderstanding of uh, the, the purpose of that step which is really just to acknowledge that addiction is a problem and it, my life was falling apart as a consequence of it. Hmm. Um, but it, it, it then sort of becomes translated into a thing, well, I'm a dysfunctional individual and, uh, you know, I don't have control or, or agency over my own life uh, in the future. Okay. Dan? So I think one of the, one of the um, key things uh, that I would like us to aim for is sort of, sort of a balanced perspective on self-help. Yes. Know? Um, so, so one of the big criticisms of self-help, and this goes back, there was a guy, Samuel Smiles, um, back in the time of Dickens, who wrote the very first um, self-help book and talked about the importance of grit and everything. And he was actually much more famous than Dickens really? uh, at that stage. Never, yeah. never heard of um, him. Made, <laughs> <laughs> and, and made much more money. Okay. Um, and Dickens kind of ripped him off, um, sort of saying, it's not really about grit and determination. It's it's look at what's going on in the factories here. You know, um, look at the social determinants yeah. of mental illness as Dickens's argument, and saying things are much more complex than just sticking with your own self help and your own grit and determination. That's kind of a fog screen, and we see the same debate in the literature today. If you look at you know the Dale Carnegie thing, you know, well, just fix yourself, but. Yes. Maybe a capitalist kind of approach to selling is not the way to go. Maybe there's certain things we shouldn't be selling, et cetera, et cetera, right. et cetera. And so you need kind of a balanced approach to what's the value of self-help? When does it work? When does it not work? When do you need to change society? It's, it's that old, you know, um, the Lord's Prayer of going, God grant me the wisdom you yes. know, to know what I can change, know what I can't change, and to know the difference between the two. But, you know, you're talking very much now about context, and I mean, Dickens, I'm just taking a slight deviation, but Dickens was a profoundly political writer, actually. If you start to study his work and you, when I say study his work, not that they were academic texts, but if you read his novels, what you see is that he was making highly provocative statements a lot of the time about some of the contemporary issues. So I can see where you're coming from, where he says, hmm, it's not just about, you know, pick yourself up and get on with it. Uh, and it's all about grit. It's like, hang on a sec. There are social determinants and there's social factors here and social political factors, which really impact on the well-being of the individual. And you've got to change a society. It's not just about the individual. I think, you know, that's that's a lot of my reading of, of, of Dickens. And, and so the self-help literature, the argument go then, would ob oftentimes end up blaming the victim. Right. You know, mm. Here's a self-help book. Uh, you read it. If you haven't succeeded, well, you obviously don't read it and apply it in the correct way. Start at the beginning. Um, start at the beginning again. Get <laughs> yeah. past the first 20 pages. Especially the, the, the we were talking about the top-down approach, right? Yes. Change your thoughts. Right. And this was the James Allen book in 1903, right? As a man thinketh. If you can change your thoughts and you're positive, you'll be more positive. The problem is a lot of people are innately just not positive. So you, you, you tell yourself, I need to be positive. You start repeating these affirmations. I must be positive. I must be positive. I must be positive. And it starts to feel totally fake because you don't feel it's like, like, um, you know, I should be grateful for having two legs because I've just, there's someone at the traffic light standing there with one leg with the, you know, trying to scrounge out a, a living. Um, but I don't feel grateful because I feel very miserable. Now I start to feel guilty in addition to feeling depressed. You see, I've never really understood yeah. that just be positive. I mean, for me, that's a kind of an irritating statement, actually. Well, because I'm, work, I'm not sure what it really means. There's a, there's a guy, Olive Berkman, who um, writes a lot about self-help books. Um, and, and he's got what he calls the negative approach to self-help. So it's it's a little bit, I suppose, like the Scott Peck thing that right. you mentioned earlier. Life is hard. Life is hard. And mm. so he's very um, 
critical um, and, and, and in a funny way about, um, you know, self-help books that focus on the secret. That's, that's, Oh, the secret. No, no, that's a, that's a wildly successful book. (laughs) It's all about relationship. I've, I've never read it, but I think it's about relationships. I think it's about envisaging things. So if you just oh. envisage the positive, then the positive will flow into your life. Okay. Um, so Man, it's, along, it's, it's yes. similar to Dale Carnegie in some ways, but just takes it, you know, a little bit further, you know. Um, and so I read a the, book. The argument that Berkman makes yes. is let's start with the negative. You know, it's not that we don't want to get helped, but um, there are different approaches. You know, that, that, just this whole issue of be positive takes me back to a book called Manifest Your Destiny. And this, I think, was oh, about – yeah. yeah, so that's really about visualizing how you want things to be. And so I suppose it also comes back to that movie Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. So, you know, you've almost got to, like, visualize what you want. But if a person is inherently negative, what do they visualize except well, it's, disaster? It's, it's like the concept that those things work for people who are already doing it, don't they? I mean – Yes, I suppose that and is true. And they might not be the people who need the help. But you know where I find my... want to be careful. I think we need, a, we need a balanced approach as well. I'm by no means advocating for the secret. No, uh, no, no. <laughs> visualization, you know, if you're a golf player and it's a technique that you use, yes. you think about the ball getting in the hole. Apparently, there's some evidence that that then might help you. No, no, I think, I think visualization is important. And so I'm definitely not knocking it and i'm saying to you that it is important to have a an idea of where you might want to be that is not where you are and maybe that's the beginning of of the next step i just wanted to read to you two things that i came across in my diary yesterday because i was looking at the at the bottom of the page for each day there's like a positive thought and um, i was talking to a patient and i said "Mm, this is an interesting one one day or day one it's your choice. I mean, for me, that's like, you know, but there's something profound in that. And the next one I came across was too many of us are not living our dreams because we are living our fears. And I thought, okay, wow, you know, this is it. You could argue and say, well, this is so trite, but actually there's some profound logic and wisdom in both of those. And they're to be found at the bottom Doesn't of the page. Marcus your- Aurelius say that we make our own worst fears come true. Jeez, don't talk to me about Marcus Aurelius. I've got Marcus Aurelius meditations in front of me because it brings me to the next point that I wanted to – because I think Marcus Aurelius is great. I love his meditations. I think it's had a profound influence on my life, I have to say, because he was just a wise guy. And the truth of the matter is, as David reminded me and as it tells you in the book, he didn't write this for people. He wrote this for himself. This was him writing about himself and how he thought about life. So there was a question that I wanted to ask, though. Because one of the definitions of, of, of self-help is actions and interventions that a person can take themselves without a clinician. And so does self-help ever replace professional help? There's a question. Dan? Um, so as, as I think we talked about a couple of thoughts, one is you know, self-help is not just self-help. There's, there's an author there, and sometimes that author can be a very well-known person um, like Oprah Winfrey, and you know that, that, that's different. And the second, I think we talked about is this concept of bibliotherapy, which says, um, you know, begin with a book. Uh, let's see how you do. You still need to see me. Uh, come back in the morning. Right. So there was something that I think is very important because for me, you know, we've, we've kind of looked at self-help within the sort of uh, contemporary um, era of, of self-help books. But in fact, there were many philosophers who I think actually wrote self-help books. I mean, I'll take Marcus Aurelius's meditations and I will say, well, if you read this, there's a lot of self-help in it. And so I think there is. And, and, and yeah, there's- so, so one of the kindest things you said about my book was, well, this is kind of a self-help book uh, for people who are interested in philosophy and psychiatry and psychology and things like that. And I thought that was really spot on. Um, and in a way, it reflects uh, a lot of what I was trying to do and also a long tradition in philosophy of being um, philosophy as a questioning what's the best way to live, right. uh, philosophy as a form of therapy. And I think you can see the Stoic tradition mm. um, and other early ancient uh, traditions is very much about therapy. Well, we're coming to the end, and there were many things that I still wanted to cover that I didn't get to. You know, uh, David had sent me an article 
called the deaths of despair. And I think I alluded to that as, as, as part of something that I'd wanted to discuss. It's in JAMA Psychiatry from April 2022, but we're not going to get there because one of the things they said right at the very end, they kind of mentioned self-help. And one of the issues that it's sort of raised for me is self-help and the thrust for self-help symptomatic of what is wrong with our society today because there's so much of community and so much of family that has has broken down so i'm just kind of going to throw it out there without actually asking for any comment and i just wanted to thank both of you for your time and your knowledge and your views and i think we've just put a perspective on 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 an issue which i think is relevant not just for practitioners well, I should say as much for practitioners as it is for, for, for patients. And I think that, you know, self-help is, is kind of inherent to a, a holistic therapeutic approach. But the question is, where does self-help begin? So I'm going to turn to, uh, an ancient Greek philosopher, writer and soldier, Xenophon. And he wrote a, a piece called The Education of Cyrus. And there was a question asked, because I think a lot of self-help is about happiness. And the question was, what should I do to pass the rest of my life most happily? And the answer was, knowing thyself, O Croesus, thus shall you live and be happy. And of course, Socrates wrote, the life which is unexamined is not worth living. So I think that self-help begins with a journey that takes you within. But I think part of self-help, if I come back to Viktor Frankl, is also about meaning. And meaning often means reaching outside of yourself. So it's a kind of a combination going in and reaching out. And so it seems to me that very balanced. <laughs> very balanced. Exactly, Dan. I'm going in and I'm going out. <laughs> and also just to mention that happiness is not a goal. Happiness is an outcome. Absolutely. It's an outcome I of think doing things and spending time within meaningful relationships. David has read his Frankel because happiness ensues. <laughs> it's not a pursuit. Exactly right. So path of happiness. Well, there are many ways to get there. But I think going within is a good place to start. So remember, there is no health without mental health. I am Christopher Paul Sabo, and this is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of brave, inspiring communities for one pharmacy at a time. And now I'd like to introduce Jackie Maiman. Jackie is a pharmacist with 35 years working experience in the health sector, specifically in the pharmaceutical industry. She's a past chairman of the Western Cape branch of the Pharmaceutical Society of South Africa. She's an elected member of the South African Pharmacy Council, serving her second term, where she chairs the practice committee. She's also the founding director of the Independent Community Pharmacy Association and is currently their CEO. Jackie believes that community pharmacy is ideally positioned to positively contribute to the health and well-being of the people of South Africa. Jackie, welcome. Nice to uh, be able to chat with you. Could you tell us more about the Independent Community Pharmacy Association and Adcock Ingram's self-care initiative? Absolutely, and hi. I think um, the Independent Community Pharmacy Association is a non-profit company, mm -hmm. and we represent the um, owners of over 1,200 pharmacies across South Africa. Right. That's community pharmacies, the pharmacies right. on the corner that you visit for your medicine. So these are, these are individual-owned, individually-owned pharmacies, Correct. and they're owner-run, actually. Yes, absolutely. Right. So that's where, as you say, it's the owner, they're running their pharmacy, they're the one that you go in and see right. um, that looks after your, your health care. Now, there is a global trend, right. and that trend is a move, um, as countries try and achieve universal health coverage, yeah. a move from what used to be the curative model of medicine, mm -hmm. where basically you went into a doctor, he told you what to do, you didn't question it, you just did it, right. to far more... Um, collaborative type of medicine focused on preventative, so trying to keep people well. And a lot of that, I think, is where ICPA, the Independent Community Pharmacy Association, and Adcock Ingram Self-Care right. really do work very well together. Yes. Because they manufacture really quality over-the-counter medicines, mm -hmm. which you as, a, as an individual can come in and access with the assistance of your pharmacist and self-care, look after yourself, you know, really make sure that you remain well. Mm. And it's, it really is a brilliant partnership. And I think what's important here is that you are empowering 
the customer, the patient, to manage themselves in a responsible way in collaboration with and under the guidance of a healthcare professional who is the pharmacist in this instance. Yes, definitely. So you, as as we go into this information age, there yes. is so much information out there. And as you say, people very often have an overload in information. Mm. So it is really nice to be able to just pop into the pharmacy and just get some advice from your pharmacist about this this myriad of information that you have. Yes. But you're quite correct. Um, there are not enough healthcare providers in globally. There yes. aren't enough. And people are expected to take more responsibility for their own health care. And many of us want to. Mm. You know, we don't want yes. to walk in anymore and just get given a script and we have no idea why we're taking the medicine. And I think um, pharmacists together with ADCOC have embraced this, where we really do work with the patient in the center, looking at what works for you. So I'm not going to thrust a type of medicine on you. I'm going to discuss the condition with you, go through a number of different um, products that are available, yeah. and together we choose the best one for you. Right. And that way you get adherence to treatment plans yes. where patients take the medicine, they believe in it, they know why they're taking it, and they keep themselves well. I think that is very important, very helpful, good to know, and I wish you and the association all the best going forward. Jackie, Thank thanks very Thank much. You. Thank you very much.